Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events in historical perspective. I'm your host, Jessica Venus Nelson. And I'm your other host, Brenna Miller. From the infamous Access Hollywood tapes of now President Trump to the allegations against producer Harvey Weinstein, to the hashtag MeToo and hashtag Time's Up movement, sexual harassment and sexual violence seem to have burst into the news cycle. New allegations against powerful men seem to emerge almost every day, as more and more women have come forward, and many are heralding this as a new era and a moment of change. But this isn't the first time such allegations have come to the forefront of public consciousness. Many of the women who are raising awareness about these issues today have protested them in the past. To discuss this longer history, we've invited three experts to discuss the history of sexual assault and harassment in the U.S. and the movements to fight it. Via phone, we have historian Dr. Kimberly Hamlin from Miami University in Ohio, who focuses on gender, women, and science in the United States. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. In the studio with us, we have Dr. Martha Shamalis, a professor at the Moritz College of Law at The Ohio State University, where she is a leading scholar on torts, employment discrimination law, and legal issues affecting women. Nice to be here. And finally, also in the studio, we have with us Dr. Treva Lindsay from Ohio State University's Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Department, where she specializes in African-American women's history, Black popular and expressive culture, Black feminisms, critical race and gender theory, and sexual politics. Hello, nice to be here. Thanks for joining us today. What is the Me Too movement and how have people responded to it? So the hashtag comes into existence in late 2017 in response to Harvey Weinstein and these various very serious allegations ranging from sexual harassment to sexual misconduct to, at this point, allegations of rape and sexual assault. But the movement itself can date back over a decade with the work of Tarana Burke, an activist who's based on the East Coast out of Philadelphia, New York, which was really creating space for survivors to find community with each other, but also to push back against policies, against laws that were very much so making it difficult for women to come forward about sexual harassment, sexual assault, rape, and other forms of sexual violence. And encompassed in this is also a movement to create things that don't necessarily always center the perpetrators, but actually think about what's necessary work for the women who survived these acts of violence. One thing that seems very important to think about is why has the Me Too movement, in a sense, gained so much visibility and become almost mainstream, despite the fact uh, that it's been percolating for so long. We can't forget Donald Trump in this, that the kind of simmering frustration of the lack of response to the victims of Donald Trump who had come forward, I think, laid the groundwork for the Me Too movement. And as I was reading the New York Times today about the victims in the current case against the physician for the Olympics, and 150 victims testified at the sentencing hearing. And I've been looking at these kinds of cases for a long time, and I never remember, I've never seen a kind of setting where 150 victim impact statements were taken in this kind of legal proceeding. So this idea of solidarity, the idea of all people coming forward to give support, um, whether it's against a particular perpetrator or about the kind of story, seems to be a hallmark of the Me Too movement. In terms of the momentum of it, I think it's also important to 
I mean, to think about the momentum and what it means for women of all generations, I think that's, I think it's interesting to think about this generationally and then the sense mm-hmm. that it really marks a sea change and things that women in my generation, I'm 43 and older, were taught even still that this is just how it is. And just the, the liberating aspect of realizing that things that you were told were just how they were, someone's going to, you know, grab you inappropriately or say wrong things and you just have to suck it up. The idea that we don't have to suck it up anymore is so thrilling and liberating that I think it really helps perpetuate and um, encourage women of, you know, from all demographics and ages and localities to share their stories and just say, oh, thank God we don't have to do this anymore. I mean, it's a real, I think, a historic shift. When Anita Hill was at Ohio State and gave a series of lectures, she mentioned that she had still in her basement hundreds of letters from women who had written her to tell her about their experiences and what her coming forward had meant for them. But they were in Anita Hill's basement. (laughs) They weren't online. (laughs) Yes, I think the digital has a a large part to do with this as well. Um, When the Me Too movement started a decade ago, we didn't have kind of the robust Twitter and Facebook and other venues that we have now. And I think another important thing to acknowledge in this moment is that it gains this kind of momentum also because one of the first sites that's really um, coming forward about sexual misconduct in this moment is in Hollywood. So there's also this Mm -hmm. kind of celebrity that there's this kind of cachet um, in the initial inception of the movement. There was this kind of moment where you see the hashtag from Melissa Milano and then actually Twitter jumping in to be like, hey, just so you know, Me Too as a movement has existed prior to this moment. So it's really important. And I think Me Too has always been about women from all class backgrounds, racial backgrounds, Mm -hmm. sexual orientations. I think it's really important. But it's also that we have to think about this in terms of the movement and how we build solidarity around this when, you know, very powerful women compared to some of the kind of low wage workers, Mm -hmm. undocumented women, women who are having racial backgrounds that aren't always adjudicated equally in our justice Mm -hmm. system um, are coming forward too. And so Time's Up, which is the kind of counterpart to Me Too, Mm -hmm. is really about Hollywood reaching across those lines and finding ways to make sure the most vulnerable are also protected and covered in this movement too. For some, the Me Too movement seems to have sprung out of nowhere, but when did the concept of sexual harassment and these kinds of ideas even begin? So the first time you have a formal coining of the term, although, of course, you have incidents before this and women who were talking about this in various ways, whether we're talking about enslaved black women and sexual harassment on plantations and sexual misconduct and sexual violence. But the term comes into existence in 1975 at Cornell University in response to a woman who resigns position but is demanding that the university provide her with unemployment benefits because she was resigning because of a sexual misconduct by her employer, by her supervisor, direct supervisor. So this term by this group of women at Cornell becomes this term that now spawns this whole greater conversation. You see reports in the New York Times with saying over 18 million women were indicating they had had some experience with sexual harassment in the workplace. And then you start to have some language that develops around that fairly quickly, considering how slow sometimes change can be with the work of Catherine McKinnon, using the words hostile environment and um, quid pro quo in order to think about the different ways we talk about sexual harassment in the workplace, and also the work of Eleanor Holmes Norton at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, doing work there also to start to try and lay some groundwork for a legal framework for addressing sexual harassment in the workplace. 
To give you an, a little bit of a, a legal timeline, the EEOC, the agency that you mentioned, first uses the term sexual harassment in its published guidelines in 1980. And they were inspired to do so by the Catherine McKinnon book in the grassroots movement that preceded it. The cases start percolating through the courts, and the first Supreme Court decision is in 1986. It's interesting that by the time we get to the Hill-Thomas hearings in 1990, there's often mention in the press that people don't understand the concept of sexual harassment, yet it is a decade old in terms of its legal status. The Hill Thomas moment referred to the Senate confirmation hearings of then nominee Clarence Thomas to the United States Supreme Court. And as part of the kind of background on the judge, it came to the attention of members of the committee that there was a number of incidents involving uh, Anita Hill, who had worked for Clarence Thomas, uh, ironically, at the EEOC when she was a lawyer there. So they asked her to testify about what had occurred while she was a lawyer at the EEOC. Um, She told a story of sexual harassment that Thomas had frequently made remarks about his sexual proclivities. Um, He had shown an interest in pornography and, and asked Hill repeatedly what she thought of various types of positions or And so it was rather, for that time, rather graphic testimony, and it involved what we now know as verbal harassment. Of course, Thomas was ultimately confirmed and now sits on the United States Supreme Court. But the Hill-Thomas moment really catalyzed the legal concept of sexual harassment. I've been thinking a lot about two things as we've been talking. One is the way in which the Anita Hill trial has played out. So when I started off teaching 10 years ago at the college level, most people had still, it was kind of more fresh in people's minds. And most people, like the students in my intro classes thought, oh, who knows? He said, she said, and how over time, the pendulum, even before me too, how the pendulum has really shifted so that now when I bring it up, students know less of the details, but the sort of general cultural sense that it seems to be, oh yeah, He was totally guilty. He did everything she said. So it's like, in some ways, I feel like our culture has grappled with that differently even before Me Too. But one of the many unfortunate things about it is, of course, Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court for life. And recently I saw um, that Anita Hill was appointed to lead the Hollywood Commission investigating sexual assault and harassment throughout Hollywood. And at first I thought, oh, wow, how great. But then I thought, how not great? You know, I bet if I were Anita Hill, I would much rather be sitting on the Supreme Court myself than having to lead this commission investigating sexual harassment, which, you know, really shaped, changed the trajectory of her career and her life. And I've also been thinking about the ways in which women entered the formal workplace in large numbers around the turn of the 20th century and how the, the very gendered and sexed ways that women came both into what became known as pink collar work, like secretaries, and also factory and lower wage jobs between, you know, 1870s and 1920s has also really shaped this conversation. So in particular, if you think about the emergence of the job of secretary, you know, in the 1870s, 1880s, this job emerges 
as industry grows, as middle management grows. And at first, the job of secretary is a male job, and it's more like an apprentice. And it means you'd follow your boss around and help him out, and that maybe you too might one day become the boss. But then with the invention of the typewriter, the job secretary changes to be more manual labor, smaller tasks, menial things, and it becomes gendered highly female. So by 1920, I think the studies show that 95 or 98 percent of all secretaries are female, whereas it used to be mostly male, and that this is a job, as everyone who's been alive or watched TV knows, is also really a place where sexual harassment often happens between bosses and their female secretaries. And of course, it's even worse for women who enter lower wage and factory labor at this time where the sexual harassment is much more flagrant and generally violent. So I think it also, the history of it is not just a legal concept, it's also a labor concept. I would just add to that also for black women and women of color working inside the home during that period is an extraordinary Mm -hmm. part of how sexual harassment happens in domestic spaces Mm -hmm. because the employment space Mm -hmm. for a lot of Mm -hmm. black women is Mm -hmm. actually in the homes. Mm-hmm. of post-slavery and thinking about the kind of dynamics of building solidarity in this moment are fraught and complicated because if we think about families and domestic, that have domestics, there are white women who are recognizing that this is happening in their homes and it's not mm-hmm. a movement around that. So I think we have to be very precise mm-hmm. in thinking about all of the different ways that this shows up and how we address this holistically and inclusively. So a large part of it is when and where women are working. Yes, Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it emerges in the 1970s as a term, but when when do we have legislation around this? Is it just with the EEOC? A Congress has never amended the civil rights laws to specifically mm-hmm. prohibit sexual harassment. But when the Supreme Court declared in 1986 that sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination prohibited by the, the federal civil rights law, Title VII. So it's in a way, it's similar to what the court is now considering is discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender nonconformity a form of sex discrimination under Title VII, even though Congress has not yet acted. So it's a, it, it is interesting how um, sometimes you don't need congressional legislation. You have a grassroots movement. The meaning of what is sex discrimination changes, and then eventually even a, and at that time, it was a pretty conservative court in 1986 said we all agree that sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination. How do you think perspectives and attitudes towards sexual assault and harassment have evolved over time? I think it's been a slow process. So I think it's been maybe more like a snowball effect, whereas now with the Me Too movement, I think the impetus and the the not just the balance of evidence, but the sort of emotional weight and the numbers mean that the idea that we should believe women is finally something that, you know, mainstream Americans, men and women are are really um, grabbing onto and saying, yeah, we, maybe we should believe women after all these years. And I also think that the question, um, whether it's the Hill Thomas hearings or any of the specific cases, often really involve two questions, not just he said, she said, in which person do we believe, a credibility question. But even when we have a sense of what happened, is it something 
that's wrong and deserves consequences. Because I do mm-hmm. think the American public believes many of the allegations made against Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and yet, for a variety of reasons, are not willing to impose consequences. It's just locker room talk, right? The idea that it's it's not deserving of a real punishment. Yes, that um, that it's not serious enough. And I think in some respects, that was also present even in Anita Hill, although many, many mm. people said they didn't believe her. I think others saw, well, what's the harm in having this discussion? And because both Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas were both African Americans, I think there was a racial element about, well, that's just sort of, they're talking amongst themselves. That's not so harmful. Right. And with the Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, you absolutely have a very fraught racial dynamic. I mean, Clarence Thomas employs very racially charged language to say what was happening to him was a high tech lynching. And if you look at the kind of history of lynching as it pertains to sexual violence, right, a third of lynchings occur based on allegations of black men raping white women. There is this really fraught history. So then you have this black woman um, in the middle of this who works for him, who's also fairly at that point in her career, a more conservative leaning Mm-hmm. Kind of in terms of we think about her as a jurist in that way, working for Clarence Thomas. And that language is very polarizing. It's very um, invective. And so at the time, even in the 90s, you have this group of black women, critical legal studies scholars who become kind of in defense of Anita Hill and start theorizing certain work around how race, gender and the law show up in order to account for how African-American women specifically. So you're thinking about Lainey Grenier, you're thinking about Kimberly Crenshaw. And so there are a number of women who become really forces in the critical legal studies field as a result of this case, too. And I think moving forward, what you see on some level is social media has made it impossible to turn away from a lot of these narratives, there's the sheer availability and accessibility of these narratives and who's saying this and some of these big profile people who've been accused in these moments. And at the same time, you have someone like an R. Kelly mm-hmm. who's been accused multiple times mm-hmm. of multiple for 20 years. And there's no kind of systemic mm-hmm. or collective response mm-hmm. of eradicating him or people who still work with Woody Allen despite allegation mm-hmm. after allegation that come out yeah. and continual mm-hmm. narratives from his family. Even people who've put on things that say Me Too and Time's Up have worked yeah. with Woody Allen post this coming forward. So yeah. although I see a shift and I see people making certain moves towards believing women, believing trans people, believing men who are coming forward about allegations of sexual violence, I still think we have a culture that suggests that some of this behavior is just what we're willing to accept mm-hmm. and we don't actually think that these actions um, warrant consequences. So even more than just saying that these are not okay activities, in some cases there's even a backlash against them, that this is just how you hit on people or what are we supposed to do. So what is that role in Me Too, but also in the past? So um, backlash occurs even before change has occurred. So it's probably better to call it a preemptive strike. (laughs) And that's what we're seeing. So there's perennially a kind of intervention or an initiative, or we can say a movement. And then simultaneously, there's a backlash. And what has always been, but is I think even more vivid and visible now, is that there's a pushback from both the right and the left. 
So the Catherine Deneuve statement in Le Monde, uh, basically she says that the Me Too movement of God has gone off the rails. There ought to be a right to pester that this kind of importuning for sex is fine. And she goes so far to say that's, that there really people shouldn't be very upset if uh, a man brushes his sex against a woman on the subway. 99 prominent women in France signed on to the statement. I thought that that was like a great mix of backlash from the right and from the left. You know, partly it was from the left in that this idea of this is censorship, it's going to somehow impair women's agency to talk about this is just Victorianism dressed up. But from the right, it was the same kind of vilification of women who do speak up as this is really not that important. This is something that you can brush off and that we'd be much better off if you just stay quiet. And what's so fascinating about that that you bring up that you see these pushes from these seemingly oppositional political positions is that both of them still rely upon the vilification of women and still rely upon these kind of patriarchal ideas about womanhood. So on one hand, this idea that if we're sex positive, then we shouldn't mind being pestered. That doesn't cultivate a sense of consent, healthy or enthusiastic consent, or women's autonomy in a way to want to say no. It only permits women to say yes in that context, or to continually have to say no over and over and over again as a mark of agency, which still is vested in patriarchy in very dangerous ways. And on the right, of course, that vilification comes, oh, so we're just going to cancel all our holiday parties and not have these things because now we can't even talk to women because that's essentially what Me Too is pushing us towards. And it's like, how interesting that the removal of pestering and demanding that women engage you in sexual conversations is you saying, now I don't know what to say to women. How telling is that about um, our culture and where we are that we haven't even cultivated a cultural space. And I'm saying we collectively, not just people perpetrating this, but have cultivated a culture in which the way that we want to engage women, the way we want to engage girls, the way we want to engage people with sexual interests is outside of the realm of enthusiastic consent. That's outside of the realm of saying, what is, what do you like? What do I like? Can we have a conversation about this? And that tells us a lot about how engaged we are and all are invested in certain ideas about how women should respond in sexual dynamics. There's a couple of things we haven't talked about yet. One is the role of Fox News in all of this. And that one of, I think, the precipitating movements was that the women of Fox News, led by Gretchen Carlson, came out against sexual harassment at Fox News. So I think there was something culturally that happened when conservative leaning women not left like somehow if a, if it happened to a conservative woman and they too think it's bad then it can't just be these left-leaning feminists talking about sexual harassment so Gretchen Carlson a former Miss America who made part of her career critiquing feminists you know came forward about sexual harassment at Fox News and so subsequently Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly have both been let go sort of but with millions of dollars um, in paychecks. But I think that that also changed the left and rightness of it in ways that are tricky and interesting. And then I think we might also think about the Republican Party's response to to harassment and assault allegations among their ranks compared to the Democratic Party's uh, uh, response. So I'm thinking, for example, obviously about Senator Al Franken's resignation 
along with people who have not resigned or who have not been called upon to resign. And also I'm thinking about the Mike, the so-called Mike Pence rule, which goes back to what mm. Treva was just talking about in terms of some men saying, well, gosh, I don't even know how to be around women now in the Mike Pence rule. And I think is built on the Billy Graham rule that you don't um, go out to a party if there's mixed company and drinking and you don't go out to dinner with women, I think is what it is, unless your wife is there. The one thing that enrages me about some of the responses to Me Too and how they they have their historical analogs when there was yet another scandal about sexual harassment in the military way back when, because we've had these sort of perennial scandals. Mm -hmm. There was a call to resegregate basic training. Women shouldn't be in the military. Segregation and staying away from women has typically been the response to any kind of airing of conflict. And I do think that we're still at this historical point where we don't get as much explicit discussion of we really not shouldn't have women in these jobs at all. Access is something that we're supposed to have. But when it comes to saying that women and others who haven't held the power, or have a right to equal working conditions, we're still negotiating. So we're still at the level, you're in the door, now what do you find when you get in the door? And that's sort of been a very, very long discussion. And also this presumption in these same gender spaces that if you take people out as though there's not same gender sexual harassment. I mean, one of the really important moments in the Hollywood aspect of the Me Too movement was obviously the Kevin Spacey and mm. harassing of men and Terry Crews also coming forward about an incident of sexual harassment and, and, and the backlash he's faced and the repercussions to his career in certain ways. And, and by that, I mean Terry Crews's career for coming forward as a man talking about sexual harassment from other men and sexual misconduct from other men. So this idea, even in creating that, even if that was the idea that we're so invested in patriarchy, that men and women need to be completely segregated. What does that then do? What we know the seemingly kind of silent percentage, but a recognizable percentage of men who experience uh, sexual harassment and sexual misconduct by other men. And a lot of this goes back to the critique of patriarchy, which is why I think it's interesting that Gretchen Carlson gets the kind of support that she does, given the work of feminists that create the language for talking about sexual harassment and sexual violence and it having these legal repercussions and these kind of cultural repercussions. But then on the other side of that, that there's still an investment in some, a, a kind and a form of patriarchy that allows for the culture to perpetuate itself, whereby women still have to think to themselves, should I come forward? Will I be believed? Right. Kimberly, you sounded like you had something you wanted to add. Oh, no, I'm just totally agreeing with you. Okay. Enthusiastically. <laughs> Enthusiastic consent. Yes. Yes. <laughs> See, it's not that hard to get. It's not that hard. It's really, why would you not want enthusiastic consent? When I'm talking to my students about this, and I get to talk about them, I get to teach intro to women's gender and sexuality studies, and I spend a considerable amount of time on consent across a different lessons because it's so important. And the fact that I ask them when they come in, how many of you learned about consent? And and it started to increase across me teaching this class over the last decade, but still it's never reaches half. 
in my class of students who've ever been taught this. Um, and I'm teaching mostly first and second year students. And at the point that we know that students are beginning to think about themselves and their bodies as sexual autonomous individuals is much before college, right? Happens well before college. That understanding consent before you are actually engaging in sexual activities, it's so important and we know that's not happening, let alone enthusiastic consent and feeling empowered to be able to say, no, yes, I like this, I don't like this, this is where we stop. And because campus sexual violence is such a pervasive issue, as well as high school and kind of dating violence and sexual harassment in those spaces, the fact that students don't have that language, either to talk about themselves as perpetrators, as victims, as people who've been both, in these contexts. And so I think we have to do a better job educationally in building this in much earlier with consent, even from two and three year olds. When you say give so-and-so a hug and like go give them a hug, that a child has the right to say no, that they have a right to their bodies in certain way. Enthusiastic consent begins very early. And I think the it's interesting that the first college to have a policy to adopt affirmative consent was Antioch College in the late 80s. And, you know, their policy of affirmative consent, which looks very similar to the number of university policies that have been adopted in the wake of uh, the latest campus rape response, was ahead of its time and was pretty much made fun of, you know, not only on Saturday Night Live, but it was held up as, as sort of an impossible to obtain, as ridiculous and impossible to obtain. You know, that policy came from a grassroots place in Antioch, and then it was revived for college students who said, you know, why should it be that I have to say no in clear terms and then I'm not believed? And would I have initiated it if the other person hadn't? You know, to me, that could be easily operationalized in the law and yet is not found in very many criminal statutes, is found now uh, precariously in the law of Title IX governing sex discrimination in education and still hasn't found its way sort of in the basic fabric of the law. So I think affirmative consent is critical. I'm glad you brought it up because so many of the incidents, really, we have to look and say, are these non-consensual? incidents. And then we have to ask ourselves, what do we mean by consent? So what does this history suggest about the future of the Me Too movement, given the changes in the past, all of these decades of movements building that we've had? What do you think will happen with the Me Too movement? And should we, I think, consider it different than yes. Is it fundamentally before? Fundamentally different from what's come before. So I wouldn't say fundamentally different, but I'll Note some hopeful differences. Maybe it comes from social media. Maybe it comes from the fact that this is not just a U.S. movement now. It's a global movement. But one feature of it, the no, don't stay silent anymore, has, I think, begun to affect the processes for determining whether or not a violation has taken place. So what has in part kept sexual harassment and sexual assaults under wraps are pretty arcane contractual devices like non-disclosure agreements. So millions of these stories are kind of kept from being 
aired by these devices. And the Me Too movement, and it still hasn't had the biggest impact, but Congress is considering legislation now to outlaw non-disclosure agreements with respect to sexual harassment suits. There's a movement against arbitration. I don't think this is going to change the world, you know, fundamentally, but I think it might change a little bit the balance of power. Two related things that I feel hopeful about um, in terms of this movement One is the real attention being paid to intersectional feminism. And I feel like even though there's been many stumbles and some failures and hiccups along the way, that I think that this is a concept that at last everyone has bought into, you know, white women, African-American women, women of color, all sorts of um, women from different racial, ethnic and class positions agree that for true change to occur, it has to be intersectional. It has to be for everyone, by everyone, that our movement leadership has to change to reflect this, that our movement goals have to change to reflect this. And relatedly, I feel a real sense of hope around the shared commitment to women in power, women in power in corporate jobs, women in power in politics. I think I feel very hopeful about 2018 elections and the groundswell of women running for all sorts of positions, local, state, national in 2018. And I think that that's a movement that will keep growing. So I think those related shifts bode really well for lasting positive change. Yeah, I would think it's very encouraging to see, um, as Kimberly just mentioned, the intersectional dynamics of this, that immediately there was a corrective to this idea that, you know, there, it honored the work of a African-American woman who started the work of Me Too 10 years ago, that there was immediately people surrounding that and that you saw in this moment that they weren't just elevating wealthy women who had this, who also are impacted by this, which is important, which doesn't in any way diminish what these women are experiencing, but also turned our attention to incarcerated women being vulnerable, undocumented women being vulnerable, vulnerable, women who are in detention centers currently that are being held, that are vulnerable to this kind of sexual violence, uh, police sexual misconduct against people. So I think it's very important that it's not only intersectional, but that you see this movement accounting for the most vulnerable. And that builds a kind of radical solidarity that I think makes this a little bit different from what we've seen before, but also builds on some of the foundational tenets of this that we see that is foundationally about eradicating misogyny, eradicating sexism, working against the patriarchy. And the other part is that we're getting more honest and frank conversations, even when they're difficult, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about what consent is, what affirmative consent is, what sexual coercion is, things that don't feel quite right but aren't necessarily sexual violence, but we need to talk about because there's still unhealthy sexual practices and engagements that happen among people of how we want our healthy, pleasurable, enthusiastic sex lives to be occurring in ways that affirm every partner who's involved in that act and that this movement is finding ways to create language that is fully gender inclusive as well. I'm encouraged by gender non-binary folks and trans folks Mm -hmm. being part of this movement and being some of the leaders and voices talking about the vulnerabilities in particular for people who are gender non-binary and trans because they actually are disproportionately Mm -hmm. impacted by sexual violence in this moment too. Are there specific things that people can do, either individuals or institutions, that will help to ensure that these conversations have a meaningful and tangible outcome? One thing that I think, um, as an academic, I always think, what kinds of conversations have we not had in the classroom or in our seminars, or at least we want to have again? 
And one conversation I want to have again is the connection between sexual misconduct and sexual equality. And I think sometimes we miss that connection. And in many respects, as we hear these stories, they are not just a story of a man who had a sexual desire and went after somebody else. Instead, we see that this kind of conduct is used to undermine women's competence, to underscore racial inequality in the workplace, to keep wages down for certain groups and to keep them up for other groups. And so what I would like to do is scale up the Me Too discussion to make it more structural, because I think unless we add that piece and it doesn't just become a dynamic and particularly a dynamic that involves only sexual lies conduct, we're not going to get to that fundamental part where you said this is fundamentally different. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely appreciate that. I think the structural is that next frontier, how we dismantle structures that produce conditions in which this can perpetuate, that you continuously see this, that we are talking about this in in connection to the larger kind of history of misogyny, the larger history of sexism, the larger history of gender inequality. We have to be concrete about that. And I think in our classrooms is one great place to be doing that. But I think also just encouraging people to have open and honest conversations about what this looks like. I mean, I think we can get to the structure sometimes through these um, through these moments when we say there's something not fundamentally different. You know, it goes back to these consciousness raising groups that are happening in the mm-hmm. earlier part of the women's liberation movement of the kind of mid 20th and late 20th century, that there's an importance to talking with each other about what this means, how we create language, and then how we create movement around that, and how we create a societal shift, I think, and a structural shift comes from first identifying what are the ethics of engagement? How do we engage if we believe that women are fully equal? What does that change about the way that we structure certain things, structure certain institutions? What has to change in order for that to be fully actualized? And I think the advocacy aspect of that and politicians have to make that a key part of their platforms. I'm looking for that in these Mm -hmm. midterm elections. Mm -hmm. Who's putting that as a part of their core principles, their core ethics, their core values in this moment to say, this is important. We need to create a culture of affirmative consent. And that has that has far reaches beyond just saying yes and no and doing this in a sexualized context, but about do we really value all persons as equal persons, as equally autonomous, full, fully realized and actualized agents? I think in addition to thinking about social activism and political activism, not just how we talk about consent and rape culture and Me Too in our classrooms. I think we also, as academics, as professors, as teachers, need to also support our students on campus in making changes to how sexual assault is adjudicated and reported on our various campuses. I know, for example, at my campus, for many, many years, every time a woman reported a sexual assault, you get an email alert that lists five ways to not be raped. Basically, you know, don't walk alone, this uh, typical victim blaming. This went on for years and years until finally through student activism with some faculty help, they changed it. So I think things like that can happen, are happening, should be happening at every campus and in and beyond the classroom. And secondly, I think it's important for us to realize that everything we do is a choice, not just who we vote for and who we support 
if we have any extra dollars, you know, if we give money to candidates, but also our choices in where we shop, what we buy, and especially what we watch on TV, on our phones, what movies we see, also sends a message. So if we, for example, stop watching shows that use rape as a plot advancement device and demand more women directors, more shows with diverse casts and diverse leadership, I think that those choices, in addition to our electoral choices, also make changes. So I would encourage us to also consider the choices we make with our viewing eyes and with our consumer dollars, as well as with our election choices. Uh, we'll wrap it up on that note. Thank you to our three guests, Drs. Kimberly Hamlin, Treva Lindsay, and Martha Shamalas. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at the E. Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breivogel. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Brenna Miller and Jessica Venus Nelson. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud and Stitcher. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.